Bienvenue. Bienvenido. Caribou. El Helen Bika. Juaning. Ose Wuseyo. Welcome to Graced with Questions, where we commune at the table of nations. No questions barred. We are Josh and Grace, your beloved hosts. This is part two of the two-part series on mental health. And Janelle, which which kind of leads me into talking about um, the importance of uh, seeking therapy. Uh, because then I'll talk about medication after that. Because, you know, why is it important? You know, you know, what is there, is there is there research showing us? that therapy makes a difference? I think that, so that's a really broad question. I think it's dependent upon what the person is seeking therapy for um, and dependent upon how often they go, how long they were in therapy, and also um, the therapist. Um, There's been research that's shown that the um, connection with the therapist is what's really important. So, you know, even Uh, if your therapist is different from you, um, you, I mean, it could still be a very beneficial therapeutic relationship if you feel that that therapist cares about you and if you feel that you have good rapport with them. I personally have had black women therapists because that was very important to me to connect with someone and talk with someone who understood some of my social position, um, in navigating graduate school and not being a faculty member. Um, but there are others who find, you know, really meaningful therapeutic relationships with maybe people who don't share the same gender or the same race as them, okay? Um, So I think the research has shown that what matters and what can be really beneficial in a therapeutic relationship in terms of the client's experience is that they believe that the therapist um, cares for them, that they have a good connection with the therapist. Now, of course, someone's own expectations about therapy, I think is going to shape their experience. So if someone goes into it expecting that it's not going to be positive, then we wouldn't be surprised if they reported that it was not a positive outcome or experience. Mm-hmm. This is why I think it's really important to get recommendations from someone because there are times where therapy could be harmful. I mean, if you're seeing someone who's insensitive, who um, is impatient, who is not attentive to your needs, then that could actually be really discouraging for someone and, and prevent them from being open to seeking help again. So um, I would take the review seriously. I would ask a trusted friend or colleague for their advice regarding someone that they would recommend because it can ultimately be really helpful and life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I've said that just to even bring it back to personally, I mean, I have a therapist. I've had one, well, for a couple of, quite a few years, a couple of years, I would say about the next the past three years and I um, just you know just to have one for me has just been uh, necessary right uh, sometimes you just need to be able to talk to somebody who's neutral um, and, and and can have different perspectives to things and, and so yeah like Janelle said like my therapist is a black woman um, and a clinician and so you know it's it's just great to be able to have somebody on hand, Janelle. Because I think sometimes 
we think things have to get bad for us to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the issue right. is because we wait till it gets bad um, or, or, or we don't think we need it at all, you know. Um, but no, I mean, I just, I, you know, I just have one because for me, I think it's necessary just to have one um, to check in. And now we, we switch it up when we need to. But I think it's important for me to just have somebody there um, who knows and has a history with me. Right. Right. Um, in case anything happens, that they are able to respond to me properly. Definitely. Right. Because I feel like many people are kind of the wait, the wait, the wait, the wait um, until it gets terrible. Especially, I, I, you know, I'm curious, Janelle, do we know, you might know, I don't know if you're able to speak to this, but do we know if more women or men see therapists? Then is it is gender play a role? I no think that I think that gender norms and uh, gender socialization do um, prevent many men from seeking help formally. Uh, men yeah. may seek help in different ways. I think men, men and women, go to their friends. But I do believe that research suggests and and demonstrates that women are more likely to seek help formally from a clinician, um, or from a from a licensed mental health provider. And so a lot of that is rooted in what the culture says a masculine man is. And even, I'm going to go there, but even what the church says okay. a masculine man is. Okay. Um, uh -huh. You know, help seeking is biblical. Okay. Talk about that. Help man. seeking is biblical. And I think a really good example of this is in Exodus 18, when Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, tells him, that he's doing too much. He tells him that he needs that he his father-in-law tells him that he needs to learn how to delegate and to have other people take on the responsibility of doing some leading and that only the major issues will come to him, but all the smaller issues can be held by other leaders um, within their group. And so um, I think it's really him. I think that's a good example because Moses heeded the advice of his father-in-law and I think it'd be helpful if we heeded the advice of other trusted, trusted members of our community, whether that is a friend, whether that's a spiritual mother or father, whether that's a mentor, whether that is someone at church. I think heeding that advice, but being willing to admit when you need help is really important. Oh, yeah. Come on now. And then we'll talk a little bit even more, get into the tribe situation in a minute, the importance of that uh, here in a second here. Which, which Janelle, my question around, okay, so once you get to therapy, once you get to see a clinician, and, you know, sometimes people need to be prescribed medication. I have friends, um, you know, who have shared that, they, they, you know, they needed to be prescribed medication. But I could even sense sometimes that even them, you know, those those who have shared that with me, the fear of sharing that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this and and around just the medication, especially like sometimes in the in in the religious community and um and especially in, in the Christian community as well. I mean, that's I can speak to that. Meaning, sometimes people in our community, when we talk about medication, people become legalistic, uh, religious, and the way they view medication. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to why medication is important and why it is not anti-biblical? to take a medication. 
Yeah, I think that the Lord has given wisdom to doctors, to clinicians, and to leaders in the church, right? Like it really, I think all of this is speaking to the need of for a community. And so um, I think that even when someone begins medication, even the doctors will say that they need to have a psychiatrist and a psychologist or someone else, whether it's a social worker or a counselor, but someone typically isn't just seeing the psychiatrist alone. Um, and I think it, again, speaks to the benefit of having really a plan, a plan between the individual and the doctor and their team about what this process will look like. Some people um, will be on medication for a short amount of time. Some people may be on medication for an extended amount of time. But taking medication does not mean that the person doesn't have faith or that they or that they um, are inherently wrong by any means. I think that there's a sort of villainization in like, the, I think medication is oftentimes demonized in Christian circles, yeah. which is in, which is really problematic and harmful. And I'm I'm so sorry to anyone who has heard those sorts of messages um, preached from a pulpit or preached from someone who's in a position of power. But uh, medication can be a very helpful tool to persons who are experiencing some sort of chemical imbalance that is impacting their their emotional and mental well being. Um, but again, the medication needs to be discussed amongst a team of licensed professionals because there are some medications that can be addictive and all medications need to be taken responsibly. Just as a medication for a physical illness or a physical ailment or for a physical recovery from a surgery can be addictive too. And so, yeah. so I think that we, we want to, again, Encourage people to seek the help that they need. Encourage people to um, seek the advice and guidance of licensed mental health professionals, uh, but to also, um, you know, not feel the shame and not be bound by the shame that others may have tried to uh, put on you. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Janelle. And, and you know, I guess actually speaking, I just had a thought. Somebody asked me the other day, Grace. You know, there's so many types of therapists, you know, people hear the word counselor, they hear the word therapist, they hear, they, they hear the word psychologist, psychiatrist. Can you give us just a, just a quick deal on that? Well, yeah. So, like, okay. What's the difference? So a psychiatrist is someone who went to medical school. They have an MD. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, all the other mental health providers do not have an MD. They're not a medical doctor. Um, a psychiatrist is. A psychiatrist has the MD. All the other mental health professionals do not. And so that is just step one. That does not mean that the psychiatrist is the first person you need to see. No, no, no. Um, and we want to be careful not to like glorify, you know, one sort of mental health provider over the other. I just want to clarify and state that from the beginning in terms of training a psychiatrist went to medical school. Other sorts of mental health providers, and the most common one is a social worker. Um, social workers um, really provide most of the mental health um, services across the country. Why? Because they are embedded in communities and schools. So, social workers are in elementary, middle, and high schools, okay? Psychiatrists mm -hmm. will typically work at a hospital. Um, some may have their own um, additional places that they work or maybe work at more than one hospital or university. Um, but a lot of times we do see psychiatrists connected to a larger uh, hospital or university unit. 
Um, social workers can work and be licensed independently. So maybe they have their own private practice, but many work in community agencies or schools. Counselors, um, again, are also licensed professionals who will obtain either a master's or a PhD in counseling. And again, you may see them working at a college counseling center or they may be working in private practice. Similar thing with a clinical psychologist. Uh, they may be in private practice. You typically don't see clinical psychologists in schools. Oftentimes, I think you'll see a counselor or a social worker in a school working with kids or young people. Um, but a clinical psychologist, they may have their own private practice. They also may be affiliated with a school, with a university, I'm sorry, um, or with a hospital. And yes, that's the main folks that I'm thinking of would be the social worker, counselor, clinical psychologist, um, and the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is the one who's going to be prescribing the medication. Um, some people go to their, um, their family doctor or their primary care doctor for medication for a mental health concern. But I think it's really helpful to seek um, the insight and advice and guidance from a team of mental health professionals, not just the family doctor. But again, that speaks to resources. If, if the family doctor or the primary care doctor is the only person that someone has access to, then then I, I completely see and understand why that would be the case. But if you have the means to, if you're able to, then I would definitely encourage you to seek help from a team of professionals. Which, which leads me into talking about some of your work, Janelle, has talked about, and you've researched stigma as well, how that influences people's ability um, to uh, seek help, help seeking. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about some of the, you know, um, stigma, the public stigma around receiving mental health? Yeah, so some of my dissertation work looked at the role of uh, public stigma. So by public stigma, it, it really is referring to um, what what others, what the general population or what maybe um, other people in your network may think about help seeking. So it's the individual's perceptions about what other people think, being concerned and impacted by the opinions and views of others. That's the sort of public stigma we think about. Whereas um, self-stigma is how someone may feel about their own selves, how they feel about themselves if they were to actually be seeking help for a concern. Um, so, you know, things about public stigma, someone, so it may be represented as saying most people um, think that it's bad to have a mental illness. And most people would be ashamed to have a mental illness. Whereas self-stigma would be, I feel ashamed to have a mental illness or I'm embarrassed. Okay, is that clear, Grace? Uh -huh. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. So in my work, I've seen that public stigma has been linked to um, seeking help less often, whether that's from an informal source or from a formal clinician. Um, huh. A lot of times we've seen in other empirical research studies that um, help seeking and stigma is really uh, prevalent among communities of color. Uh, my work, again, is focused primarily on Black Americans, and so we do see these sorts of uh, stigmatized ideas and beliefs about help-seeking, and particularly around mental illness and, and medication in particular. 
But we also have seen in some of my dissertation work that the people who are endorsing the most stigma are the ones who need help. And so, again, that's pointing to opportunities for intervention um, that could really serve people who are holding on to these negative beliefs and who are being impacted by what they think other people would say. Absolutely. I, I know sometimes people get that confused, like, you know, stigma and shame. And so we, you know, Janelle and I were talking about this earlier, you know, uh, for work on shame, we would definitely encourage you to listen to work, uh, the work of Bernie Brown, uh, which who talks about shame. But uh, yeah, I think stigma is such a, a powerful, Janelle, and in the sense of its ability to, to debilitate, right? Somebody's ability to actually um, seek help and, and to actually um, say there's something going on here. Um, which kind of, you know, for me, it's important, you know, you and I talk about community all the time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like something, it's kind of, number one, I feel like it's, it's a very close topic that we talk about, things we talked about. But let's talk about the tribe, the importance of tribes. You know, how would you define a tribe? Because the tribe, in the way we've conceived tribe, oftentimes we think the tribe has to be our family or it has to be. And those are those people are critical because they are in our lives. Uh, they may not be in your lives. But how would you de- define a tribe? Because they they play a critical role in our ability to seek help, to address pain, to also do this together and to do it well? Um, I would say you could think about maybe a tribe as a community of people that are committed to your life, to who want the best for you, who encourage you, who challenge you, who love you, who pray for you, and who you trust, who you can really rely on um, when things are good or when things are not so good. And so uh, I don't think the goal is ever to have a big tribe or a large tribe. If you do, that's great. But I think it really is, is the goal is really to have more people of substance um, who know you and who you can be comfortable with and who you can be vulnerable with and sharing what some of those challenges are that you're experiencing. Janelle, correct me, because I feel like we've talked about this. There's been, you've done research on this or on community? Um, I, the, so that's not that's not necessarily like the language that we would use. I think um, a lot of what you would see most often in research is conversations about social support. Uh huh. Yep. And so, so yeah, I mean that is um, a longstanding area of research with a ton of work um, that focuses on the role of social support um, and how it's beneficial to both physical and mental health outcomes, which is not surprising, but it does speak to the importance of connection and community grace when you're thinking about how people have been impacted by loneliness during COVID-19, having to be away from family for for long amounts of time um, and having to um, really go without that sort of connection that they may have been missing for a really long time. For good reason, right? The lockdowns have been necessary. I'm not saying that at all. Instead, I am saying that during this time, people have had to be creative and finding new ways to connect and be really intentional about that. Some people have done it really well and others have not. And I think we need to really be thinking about those who maybe have not done so well because they may be the ones who are really struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know even for me, right? Like 
I moved in the pandemic. Obviously, my sister and I, you know, uh, live live together, and so that provides community. Obviously, I'm very intentional about my community and reaching out, but I, I know it's difficult, just in general, for to feel like you are seen, heard, um, for many people, especially now. And so, from the community perspective, Janelle, how would you support? What does support look like for somebody who's struggling with depression or any sort of mental health um, issue? From your perspective, I mean, it doesn't have to just be a research thing, but just just from your perspective, what does support look like? Hmm. To not try to, and maybe we may not do this, in, many of us don't do this intentionally, try to re- stigmatize people what does it look like for a community for a church for somebody for a social support group to come around somebody to support them well i think that um you know the best thing to do would be to ask that person um what they themselves may need or what they may find particularly helpful because everyone's needs may be a bit maybe different um you know someone who's experiencing depression they may need people in their community to just meet practical needs. Like, you know, if their spouse just died, maybe they would benefit from you cooking for them or dropping off food at their house. Um, if someone is experiencing the loss of a loved one from COVID, um, you know, perhaps they would appreciate you calling and just being present with them if you're not able to be there with them physically. Um, I think that it's amazing how just asking someone if they are suicidal, can be a good way to um, address any concerns that friends and family may have about someone's well-being and mental health. Research has shown that asking someone if they are suicidal is not going to make them suicidal. That's not giving them ideas about suicide, but it is a way to offer direct support um, by asking and then referring. So I think that's a really important thing. You know, churches can offer support to someone who's struggling with mental health issues by referring to outside clinicians who are licensed mental health professionals. I don't think uh -huh. it's a good idea to try to handle every single thing in-house. Pastors are necessary, pastors are needed, but most pastors are not licensed mental health professionals. And so I well. think pastors have to, I think, do a good job of having connections and relationships with community mental health providers and then referring their, their uh, congregants to those trusted mental health providers um, when experiencing, you know, who are who may be experiencing a lot of concern. Um, oh, were you going to say something? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I'm glad you said uh, that it, it's okay to ask somebody that question. Because sometimes I think people think, well, if I if I say it, actually, even if, if you're their friend, uh, you don't want to impose maybe your preconceived idea on them, but yet you are sensing that there is something going on. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's a balancing act now. Yeah. I feel like it's a balancing act. Yeah. Uh, how do you support somebody without having mm, misconceptions potentially, right? Uh, you know, are there, are there words that we can use that that, that resonate with compassion? Um, or maybe just in the sense of just trying to inquire to find out what's really happening. 
So just to clarify, you're asking if there's a specific language that could be used yeah. or if... Yeah. I mean, because I feel like people are... I mean, the research is... I mean, when you said the research is clear about people actually being able to ask this question, are you suicidal? It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to ask. Uh, but what if... Hmm, I guess my question is, we could be get. Let's say you're asking somebody, a friend or somebody. Uh, I guess the question is, how do we go about it compassionately? How, how is the? How do we use words that are framing? I guess the word I'm trying to figure out without being, uh, without implicating. Um. Well, I think perhaps. Um you know, it's possible to think that maybe your friend could feel attacked or, you know, maybe feel that you are judging them. And so I think maybe starting off the conversation by really communicating from a, from a place of sincere concern um, that you are by no means judging them, but that it's your desire to really be a good friend and brother and sister to them. And that maybe out of your, um, desire to be a good friend and sister to them that you want to know how you can best support them um, and if they say they don't know because sometimes the people that are grieving or going through a difficult time they may not know what they need they may not know um, they may not know you know what to ask for and that's fair yeah. so I think in those moments I think using language and and being consistent and saying okay well I will uh, just be here or I will yeah. agree to just, you know, stop by your house every Saturday and check on you. I, I will commit yeah, to good. calling you once every two weeks just to see how you're doing or, or maybe setting a regular date where you say, okay, we're going to FaceTime every Saturday at 3 PM. If you have updates, that's great. If you don't, that's great too. Mm. And so I think that, you know, it can be sometimes challenging to maybe provide, um, you know, specifics or directs because you know every friend and relationship is different but um, but yeah I do think that perhaps positioning this this and centering this conversation as um, really an opportunity for you to serve your friend and be there for your friend uh, that's um, good. versus you versus them feeling like you are judging them um, or trying to you know, imply that they are, um, that they are going through or maybe experiencing a really tough time. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's been moments, you know, and you know, you and I have talked about this privately, but there's been more moments people have come into my life uh, who are not, you know, necessarily, you know, people who were in my friend group or something like that who needed support, who needed the mental health support, who have had to get in the car and drive them to a mental health, uh, you know, community or space where they can get help um, and, and, and sat there with them to fill out the forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it, in those moments where I've had to do that, I know I could sleep at night well, uh, knowing that it wasn't up to me to fix it, it wasn't up to me to have the show the right answers in those moments. It was just being able to say, I am here for you. I'll be here for you with whatever you need. 
even if that means driving you to the place uh, and sitting with you through the process. Um, and I feel like that, moments like that really extend a level of grace and hope because in some situations, I've told you, some of them were, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, yeah. because, because it, it, it was pretty bad in, in, in some of the situations that I've, I've been part of. But, um, but I'm grateful uh, that there are people like you who do this work, who research this work, um, who are able to speak into this work and, and give us um, the necessary wording and language to be able to support people that we love or care for, but that we don't even know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in the message of hope, we are closing this out here. In the message of hope, what is the hope here, Janelle? In a time we're living in COVID, this generation is significantly impacted by COVID. I think we are forever changed. I think the world is forever changed. Um, there's a lot going on, grief, death, mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a lot of beauty. Yeah. What is the hope that you would say? Uh, what is the message of hope right now? I think the message of hope today is the message of hope that has uh, always been. And that's, again, for the listeners of the Grace With Podcast question, um, Grace With Questions podcast is that, <laughs> it's that, you know, in scripture, we see uh, God described as, the God of the Bible described as the God of hope and the God of all hope and the God of all comfort. That's directly from the scriptures. And I think um, the God of all hope at that time is still the God of all hope today. And the God of all comfort at that time is still the God of all comfort today. And so our hope is that we know that this is not the end, that even though in moments when it feels like we are at our end and that we are losing so many things and people dear to us, that there is a hope of glory. He's the hope of glory that we will see and that we'll be reunited with one day, um, but that there is still a work and a purpose for, for us to do here on this earth, that we haven't completed the task that he set before us. That even in our pain, uh, we can offer comfort and hope and healing and blessings to others. Um, scripture talks about how we go through sorrows and the Lord heals us so that we can then offer that same hope to others. And so um, our hope is to be rooted in him. And that is so much easier said than done. Um, but our hope is that he's still given us a purpose. And it's for that purpose that we have work to do and a work and a task set before us. Uh, that's still not complete. Mm. Ooh, come on now. Oh, that is so good. That is so good, Janelle. I just love that. And and I I, I also want to add to this, and we always do, no matter, even though you're a believer, you're searching, you're seeking, or wherever you may be in your journey, uh, we want you to know that um, here at Grace with Questions, uh, that we truly do care about your whole being. And more importantly, that God cares about all of who you are, your mind, your soul, your body, your emotions. And he wants to have you bring all of those questions, all of those difficulties to the table. And so there is grace for your questions. There is grace for your sorrow. There is grace um, 
for whatever you may be going through in this moment. And know that we love you. Know that we are always praying for you guys, no matter where you are. And we want you to continue to bring your questions to the table. It is valid. And we need to listen. And we are here to do so. Okay, y'all. We love you. I just want to thank the amazing, phenomenal. I know I took a lot from this. Dr. Jenna Goodwill. My girl, my sister. I call my bosom girl, my bosom sister now. Um, and I just love you, sis. Oh, I love you for being too. with us. Thank and you. For the knowledge. You just blessed us so much. Thank you so much, my sister. Thank you. And we just bless you and your work. And we know you're going to continue to change the world. So we love you. And y'all, we'll see you guys soon. Cheers. Hello fam, we are so grateful to each one of you guys for being present with us, for journeying with us. Um, if you have not subscribed yet, please go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Please leave us a comment, rate us. We want to hear from you. Your thoughts and your opinion does matter to us. And we read each comment that you send us, you DM us. And of course, you guys know you have to follow us on Instagram. So go ahead and do that. I graced with questions and also check out our website at gracewithquestions.com. This website was created by Blast Marketing by my dear friend Dina Taylor. Check her work out. Also, we want to thank um, our wonderful guest editors that come on the podcast. We have Quentin Thomas, um, our newly guest editor. We have Chi Yang and Jasmine Jones as well as guest editors on the podcast and we are grateful for them the music is by greg font and so as always guys we thank you for your work we ask you to subscribe share and please feel free to dm us with any sort of questions that you may have okay much love much blessings guys love you cheers cheers